0: The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Turn with me, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 5, and we're going to start in verse 1. Praise God. Uh, We are continuing this week with our series, Holy Reflections, talking about God's design for singleness, sex, and relationships. Uh, One other quick announcement before I forget, Uh, many of you have been asking me about the audio of previous sermons. Either you were here and wanted to hear it again or missed for uh, various reasons. Everything up till today is now uh, caught up, so you can get that through the podcast. I don't think it's on the website yet. That's a multi-layered process for getting the audio out there. So we do have a podcast. I don't know if you guys all know that. You can subscribe to it. That way, when new content hits, you'll get a, a notification. But you can search Love City Church on uh, the the podcast app um, and find it there. So the audio is online now. Okay. Uh, Last week, we discussed the why of relationships more than the what. Um, We saw that fruitful romantic relationships start with intention and purpose, and the only reason to be in a relationship that makes sense is because the potential for marriage is being assessed. This week, we are going to deal uh, more with some practicalities of pursuing a courtship or a dating relationship. Um, as promised. So many times people ask things like, uh, what is the line or how far is too far when it comes to physicality and relationships? Um, So we're going to examine some principles tonight that will help you to navigate these questions with God's wisdom, Um, and we're only going to draw lines where the Bible does. Uh, On the rest, we're going to give you what the Bible says and let you apply it along with conscience and the help of the Holy Spirit, okay? Okay. So we're going to read Ephesians 5, uh, verses 1 through 13 together, okay? Let's do it. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience." Therefore, do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them, for it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret." But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. Praise God for his word. Um, So first big idea here is that God has a standard when it comes to sexual purity for his people. And it really can be summed up in verse 3. Here's what he says. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Um, most, of, most of the time I prefer the way the NASB says things, but the word-for-word word, uh, translation here, I'm not sure it does quite as good as some, as some of the thought-for-thought thought translations, because some of them here will say, let there not even be a hint of sexual immorality found among you as is proper among God's people. And so, Um, that's kind of the high bar that is set right off the bat, right? So when it comes to questions of sexual immorality and sexual purity, God's standard on it is, let there not even be a hint of that. He says, let immorality or any impurity or greed, let them not even be named among you. We shouldn't even give the appearance that those things are happening among us um, as people that are redeemed by the blood of Christ. So now, It can be difficult to imagine this standard being attainable, living in the midst of a culture that has its own standards and often considers God's standards to be oppressive, archaic, and unrealistic. Is that not true? Sometimes it can be hard to even think this way because there is a constant counter-message you're always getting in regards to these things. So sometimes it can be difficult to even think it's possible. For many, if not most, in our current cultural context... The question of sexual standards does not even revolve around marriage as it would in a biblical discussion. But we have devolved to the point that discussion now focuses on the benefits and drawbacks of sex on the first date. I promise you, and the more gray I get in my facial hair, the more my blood pressure goes up when I research where we're at culturally (laughs) as far as a sexual ethic. if, if you if you do some quick Google searching, man, it is unbelievable what you will find as far as what the main point of conversation is for most of the people in our culture in regards to sex and sexuality. The bulk of the conversation has to do with benefits and drawbacks to whether or not uh, you have sex with somebody on the first date. That's where we're at. That's where the discussion revolves. Okay, it's. I'll give you some. I'll give you some evidence. Okay. <sighs> A 2012 Singles in America survey found that 55% of singles reported having had sex on the first date. That was 66% of men, 44% of women. Uh, There's one very popular quasi-news website, and it interviewed people about sex on the first date. This was their disclaimer before listing the responses that they gave. So they wanted to get some input from people. So here's what they said before, and then I'm going to read you some of the responses. Why am I doing this? not to be crass, I need us to understand where we're at. I need you to understand where the majority of people are at when they think about this and and how how that plays into what we do as God's people and why that matters, okay? So here's what they said. Of course, there's no right answer here. Our feeling is essentially, you do you. I'm not making this up. This sounds like something I made up, doesn't it? I'm not making this up. This is actually what it says, okay? Our feeling is essentially you do you, but we were curious what our readers thought about sex on the first date, so we asked them, and here's how some of them felt, okay? Uh, I'm going to give you, I think it'll, it'll be interesting for you to listen to the distinction between the way women and men talk. I've got two things that women said, two things that men said, okay? When being asked about sex on the first date. This is where our culture's at. As a woman, I am an adamant supporter of sex on the first date when I feel like it. I hate that we've been socialized to withhold sex from men and use it as a dangling carrot. Treating sex like a prize or an arbitrary milestone teaches us to suppress our sexual desires for the sake of gender and social norms. The only question you should ask yourself when deciding if you want to have sex should be, do I want to have sex? Okay? Okay. You'll notice the marked difference between the first male response. If you are attracted to that person, I don't see anything wrong with it. <laughs> Still pitiful, just not as long-winded about it. Um, not to say that you ladies are long-winded. It's just, this, this fits squarely into some stereotypes about like, how many words a male and female use in a day. Okay, so um, <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to laugh about it so I don't cry. I, I'm being honest with you. This is pitiful, Okay. Okay, here's another one. This is from a, a woman. I believe in sex on the first date, L- like, like the tooth fairy, or like, like, like Jesus. I believe in it. I believe in sex on the first date, or at least by the third. I had an experience where I had been dating a guy for a few months before the first time. Then we did it, and it was bad and weird, easily the worst sex of my life. If we had done it earlier, I would have saved myself some time and energy. Okay, here's another guy. If you go out, this is his response almost, if you go out, few drinks and some laughs, and you're both not just stupid drunk, then I think sex is okay on the first date. Okay, just so you know, I'm not exaggerating. We're in trouble as a culture, okay? I mean, ultimately, you could summarize the current cultural context and sexual ethic by that that song that earlier in the 2000s. I think this song is going to be an indictment on us both musically for future generations and from what it communicates. The the most memorable lyric being, uh, "Oh, what was it? Um, You and me, baby, ain't nothing but mammals. So let's do it like they do on the Discovery Channel." That was a song that many people bobbed their head to and had no idea that underlying of that message is a satanic attempt to get you to think about sexuality as nothing different than what happens at the zoo when animals mate unfortunately sexuality is not like that well fortunately it is but unfortunately they don't understand that it's god has established and created human sexuality and it exists on a different plane than just the procreative act of mating that animals do. There's a spiritual connection, and it's way, way deeper than just the physical act. The Bible's clear about that. However, based on these responses, and based on the almost unbelievable way that this whole conversation gets framed, people have bought into that lie. And it's, it's really, really a bummer. Tragically, the fact that there is a good and loving god who created us and gave us the good gift of sex to be enjoyed within the safety and security of covenant marriage does not even register in the thought process of most most women look into it man most women are seeking out the the evidence one way or the other of do They have a better chance of hooking a guy long-term if they do have sex with him on the first date or don't have sex with him on the first date. Which one's going to have a better chance of them holding on to him? That's mostly what they're thinking about. And I think stereotypically what a lot of guys that are out there in the dating scene, what you'd think they're thinking is, is a lot of times what they're thinking. And, and, and the weird thing is many, many men when questioned will think, will think down upon a woman that will have sex with him on the first date but doesn't think down upon himself for the same act. And we'll we'll speak of her as if there's something wrong with her, but he's conquered something. Our sexual ethic is broken, and it's busted, and we need God's help. We are way, way, way far from the mark of any kind of wisdom or sanity when it comes to these things. This is why, as God's people, one of the ways we can most effectively reflect the holiness, goodness, and the loving beauty of our God is by treating sex and sexuality different than the rest of the world. Now, we don't sit and throw stones from our holier-than-thou thrones, but we should live in such a radically different way regarding these things that we get the opportunity to explain to a curious world that it is not because we are better than them, but because God has shown us a healthier happier, and holier way to go about these things. Approaching these issues God's way is not only because of love for him and obedience to him, those that, I think that should be our primary motivation, but also because practically his wisdom stands true as the best and most joyful way of doing things throughout generations. A 2012 study published in the Journal of Sex Research said that having sex on the first date may harm relationships over the long term. Could have told you that, but we need a 2012 study for that. Approximately 11,000 unmarried people in steady or serious relationships reported lower levels of relationship satisfaction, communication, and stability compared to couples who waited longer or who abstained from sex. The Bible has a lot to say about sex and sexuality. It has a lot of wisdom for those who are dealing with the temptations that come along with these things. Being in a relationship where you are building a friendship to explore the possibility of marriage is many times going to increase these temptations. I think we need to say however, much of what we're going to cover tonight in the realm of, of you know sexual purity God's standard for these things does not apply simply to people that are actively in the process of, of seeking a spouse. Obviously these things apply to folks that are are single either as you know a lifelong commitment to the Lord or as a, a season of just kind of not yet being married it applies of course to people that are going to be in in the midst of a a, a relationship where they are, are seeking out God's wisdom as far as a, a wife or a husband uh, and and many of these things also apply to those that are married and have been married for a long time God's standard of sexual purity speaks to us in whatever season we're at so don't click out if you're not you know, If you've been married 20 years, um, or if you have no intention of, of ever seeking a spouse, because for a couple reasons, one, these things are still going to apply to us. Sexual temptation is, is a reality for most, if not all of us. Secondly, uh, our hope is that you will not only hear this, but grab these principles in such a way that you'll be able to teach them, because even if you're not currently struggling with some of these things, you know somebody that is. And furthermore, for you to be able to speak articulately and eloquently and uh, authoritatively about how the Bible gives us wisdom that's, that is in stark contrast to where we're headed as far as these things um, is an incredible way for us to be a light to the world, which is very interesting that in that passage in Ephesians 5, those, that language comes up, okay? So we need, we need to, as God's people, be a light in a, in a very dark landscape in, in regards to these things, all right? So we're going to explore some scripture together to help us choose the way of escape from these temptations that 1 Corinthians 10 promises will always be there, right? So 1 Corinthians 10 tells us there's no temptation that's not common to man and that God will always give you a way of escape. Sometimes though, we don't want the way of escape, right? Sometimes we don't see the way of escape and there's a lot of things that can lead to that. However, us having a, a, a better, well-rounded, more circumspect understanding of the way God thinks about these issues and scriptures written upon our heart to back it up is going to help us uh, to have more exit doors away <laughs> uh, when we start feeling trapped in, in a situation where uh, we're tempted in regards to these things. So uh, how, before we go any further, so we're going to get into some verses here, um, some specific principles. Before we go any further, I think it is important to address a lie That many of you may be struggling with right now, and I'm afraid that that lie might stop you from um, benefiting from the truth of God's word in regards to what we're talking about. So our enemy would like you to believe that if you don't have a sparkling clean past in regards to these things, uh, sex and sexuality, that you are dirty or damaged. And so there's really no point in listening or in striving for purity as far as you're concerned. Here's here's what I want to say to you. The Word of God, which is the highest and final authority on every subject that it addresses, says that that right there is not true. Here's how the Bible would address that lie that you may be struggling with, even as we're sitting here um, underneath the anointing of the teaching of God's Word. The book of 1 John tells us that if we confess our sins and we repent of them, that God is faithful and just to forgive us, And the book of Romans says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So what that means is it doesn't matter if what you deserve to wear is a tattered garment with a big scarlet A on the front. God is willing to burn those rags in the refining fire of his glorious presence and to clothe you instead with the radiant robes of righteousness that Jesus purchased for us with his perfect blood. That's where you stand today. That's the potential. So please, don't let the lie of the enemy get you out of this or feel like there, there, there's no way that, that a discussion of purity matters to you because you've already you know, stained yourself through uh, struggling in this area. That's not the case. Grace, forgiveness, and mercy is available for you. Forgiveness, uh, and the way God does that is not, I forgive you, but I'm holding it over your head. He washes us white as snow, and so you can stand clean before God today, and you can take these principles, and you can go from right where you're at, and you can uh, be a light to other people, and you can have joy instead of pain in regards to these issues. Okay, so first of all, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna run through some scriptures here. Okay, so this hopefully. I think most of you take notes, tonight would be a good night to even just jot these references down and you go look at them later, because I'm not going to, a, a sermon could be preached on each of these principles, and I'm going to try real hard not to do that, okay? So um, first of all, in, in thinking through uh, what we pointed out earlier in, in Ephesians 5.3, right, that sexual immorality should not even be named among us, um, Again, I told you other translations will say, "Let there not even be a hint of sexual immorality found among God's people." Okay, so first of all, I think it's important that we set that high bar, right? We are—we kind of heard the low bar of where our culture is at right now, right? Um, essentially, I mean, it's—you <clears throat> know, for, for a lot of people, it's—it's it's like um, <laughs> at this point, the the the. The noble approach to sexuality is, is to use a condom. And if you've done that, then you've kind of, you know, you've, you've arrived. You deserve a blue ribbon in regards to these things, which is really, really tragic, okay? So that's, that's kind of the low bar, um, and, and we've heard some of that. The high bar set by the Lord Jesus himself uh, through uh, inspiring the Apostle Paul to write this instruction to the Ephesians is that there should not be any whatsoever. Sexual immorality found among God's people. Okay, so that's the high bar. Now, as we often say, essentially the call there is to perfection in regards to these things. Let there not be sexual immorality found among us, period. Jesus gave us more definition of that and filled that in around that because he's not satisfied just that we don't uh, physically uh, sin in in a sexual way, but he, he cares even about the inner, you know, musings of our hearts and minds, right? So it's, it's, it's a very high bar, but we need to set the bar there and know that we're going to have to rely heavily upon God's grace and mercy and help to even strive for that without getting disappointed and discouraged. But we need still to understand what God has called us to and run towards that goal as opposed to setting our own mid to low level goal like, well, hopefully I just don't catch an STD, right? Like that's where some people are at on this thing. Well, if I'm just smart enough to not do that, I'll feel like I've, you know, done a good job. Listen, that's not God's goal. That's not the bar that God has set. God, what I want you to see from Ephesians 5.3 is God does have a standard. He does. And his standard is the one that we need to care about, right? I realize that throughout time, mankind has had other standards. They fall short, and they are not what we as God's people would push towards, Okay? Here's some, here's some other principles for us to think about. Here's some scriptures to help us kind of fill in and fill out these thoughts, right? Because now I gave you the high bar, and some of you are like, wow, that's a high bar, okay? There's other thoughts, there's more wisdom, there's other tools given to us in the scriptures that'll help us think through this in a way. It'll give us ammunition, it'll give us, it'll increase that shield of faith that extinguishes the fiery darts of the evil one, those temptations that come to try to pull us to the right and the left into these deviancies in regards to sexuality, okay? So here's another scripture we want to think about, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18. The, everything above that is also helpful, you should take a look at that. 1 Corinthians 6, 18, starting there, going to verse 20, says this, he says, flee, Sexual immorality. For every other sin a man commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral man sins against his own body. He goes on and he says, And do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit given to you by God, and so you are not your own. You have been purchased. So glorify God with your body. Okay? There's a few things we can see in that. First of all, flee immorality, right? Is that what we do? Maybe sometimes, but I think a lot of times when we understand that sexual temptation is, is, is happening, many times our response is not to flee from that. Many times our response is to say, well, I'm super disciplined, I can handle it. We'll talk more about that later. Probably not, actually. Uh, secondly, <laughs> sometimes we have too much confidence in ourselves. Secondly... Um, the reality is, you know, I always think about the story of Joseph when it comes to this. Um, you know, Potiphar's wife comes at him, and she's, I mean, she's being real aggressive, right? She wants Joseph to sleep with her. And so she's doing everything she can, saying everything she can. He's saying, no. I would not do that to my master, and I'm a man of God. That's not going to happen. No, no, no. And, you know, she's not taking no for an answer. So she goes all the way to grabbing this brother by his garment, because she's you know, sh- she's feeling it, right? She wants Joseph bad. And what does Joseph do? I mean, Joseph, like, like a football receiver, jukes her, you know, flops up out the garment and is gone puts the wheels on and runs up out of there. Of course, she ends up framing him because she's mad and I'm sure her pride is bruised that he wouldn't um, sin with her, but uh, that brother fleed. (laughs) He was out of there, right? And so, you know, when it comes to to sexual temptation, I think we need to always, at least figuratively, man, you need to have your running shoes on and be ready to roll. Sometimes you just got to get up and go, whether it's, you know, whether it's just mentally figuring out how to flee to some other set of thoughts so that you're not drugged down that that path, or sometimes physically you might need to get up and move yourself out of that situation so that you are not tempted in that way. Well, why would I do that? That could be weird. La-da-da. Da. Yeah, I know, but this comes down to ultimately what do we care about most? Do we want to obey God when it comes to these things? Do we want to experience the joy and the freedom that comes in obeying God in these things, or do we want more of the brokenness that has come to characterize most everybody in our culture when it comes to sex and sexuality? Do we care that this is one of the ways that we can almost most vibrantly set a distinction between those that follow God and those that don't? There is unbelievable darkness in our world today regarding these things, and this is one of the ways primarily that we can be a light and a city set on a hill. Um, <laughs> Fleeing sexual immorality. Um, he, he goes on to say, he says, flee sexual immorality for every, this this is one more like, for every other sin a man commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral man sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? And so, Oftentimes, what we like to say is, sin is sin, right? Don't judge't judge. Don't judge, uh, don't judge me because I sin differently than you. We like to say that one. And I'm not saying there's no legitimacy to that, but what we need to understand is, sin is all the same on one level, and that's the level that it doesn't tax God's grace anymore to forgive a murderer than it does somebody that, you know, stole a pack of gum. Because they 've got a klepto tendency, right God's grace is infinite and thus not taxed more to, to forgive the, the murderer than the other person. however, that does not mean there's not greater consequences for committing a murder than stealing a pack of gum. Are you with me? okay that's just true. so some sins do have a deeper and more profound consequence. We see here a distinction made that kind of crushes our well, sin is sin kind of blanket statement because Paul straight makes a distinction right here. He says, flee sexual immorality because every other sin a man commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral man sins against his own body. And do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit and given to you by God, you've been purchased, so glorify God with your body. He makes a distinction, doesn't he? Is there two buckets there? There's the sexually immoral man and then all the rest of the other sins. Here's, what, here's the point. Here's what he's saying. You, you should flee sexual morality because sins that have to do with this arena, sins that have to do with sex, sexuality, uh, deviation from God's design when it comes to these things, these types of sins will hurt you and will hurt other people more Than other types of sins. There is a greater consequence. I would say it this way. Sex before marriage is much like skydiving without a parachute. You may have an exciting time, but there's going to be really devastating consequences at the end. And here's what you need to understand. The consequences aren't always exactly understandable right at the moment. Sometimes it takes people years to understand the brokenness that has happened because of deviating from God's good design for sex. Sometimes it takes a long time for people to understand the brokenness that has collected inside of them. Uh, Because a lot of people for a lot of time can keep masking the pain and brokenness that is caused by that, by more of the sin. And so they can get this temporary exciting thrill uh, through more and more sin. But then at some point, invariably, you come to this realization that I'm still empty, I'm still broken, I'm not fulfilled, I don't really have joy, um, and I've made this spiritual connection with a whole bunch of people and just broken it and treated it casually, and it leads to a lot of pain. And so we need to, we need to uh, understand why Paul makes the distinction. We need to flee sexual immorality, and we need to understand and think of it in terms of, you know, people used to think that buildings like this with, with beautiful dorms and, and ornate architecture, that th- this, this was important because somehow the, the, this, this building was more sacred than another building? The, the reality is, when Jesus died on the cross, he took his last breath, there used to be a thick veil that separated God's presence from man. That thing tore, man. And that told us that no longer... Was, was that going to be the case? There was no longer going to be a tabernacle or a temple or a place geographically, physically, where God's presence dwelt. What God then did is release the Holy Spirit to now dwell inside of us. And so every single time we take our bodies that God has used as his New Testament temple and we go commit sexual immorality with them, we are, in a very real way, uh, committing an act against something that, that God has deemed sacred. He has made our body his temple. And so it matters to him, according to these scriptures. We're going to have to ask ourselves if that matters to us. I think it should. Okay? Um, so what was that? Okay? Ephesians 5.3 is kind of the overarching standard I'm giving you, that there should be not even be a named among us sexual morality. Now, I'm trying to give you more thoughts and more ammunition, more principles that can guide the way you're going to determine the answer to some of the questions that you ask, that sometimes people ask about these things, right? Well, when it comes to physicality, I think the I told you I wouldn't draw lines unless the Bible does. The Bible's drawn a pretty thick black line that, that sex belongs inside the safe parameters of the covenant of marriage, and there's a whole lot of reasons for that. Uh Aside from that, then you've kind of got what can tend to be gray areas, people asking questions about, well, what about this and what about that? What about some of the physicality that leads up to sex and sexuality? Okay, so now we're going to talk about principles to help you with conscience and with the help of the Holy Spirit decide how it is you're going to navigate those things. Um, And for those of us that are kind of already past the dating or courtship uh, portion of our lives, we're able to teach these things to other people, but also apply... You know, the, the principles it's, it's, that, That's another lie we need to understand isn't true Some people think the temptation for sexual immorality Is going to totally pff, disappear When they get married Let me hear the married people Don't leave me out here by myself If you're married, let's, let, let's, let's just deal with that lie right now Does the temptation for sexual immorality Completely, poof, disappear when you get married Go ahead and tell me no. no, it doesn't Okay, That's not true Now I realize for somebody that's not yet married They could look at married people and say Yeah, well it's easier for you because of obvious reasons, hey man, I get it. however, uh, the, the level of sexual deviancy that is possible in today's culture is, is so is so deep and so dark that honestly, unless you're thinking about unless you're thinking about these things through the lens that God provides us in His word, I think the temptation is just as strong for married people as it is for unmarried people, honestly, in our day and age because and we're going to get into this more because marriage has been so. Underemphasized and, and now is treated like like such a uh, kind of cheap thing. So, but I can't get into that. So, okay, I'm giving you more tools. I'm giving you more thoughts. I'm giving you more principles that God has given us that can help us navigate this thing. Here's another one for you. First Timothy five. Write this down. First Timothy five starts in verse one. We're we're gonna get all the way there to verse two. So he starts off and essentially what what he's doing, Paul. Through the, uh, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is instructing Timothy how to relate to other people. And so he starts off by saying, listen, don't be cocky to the older men. Treat them like fathers with respect. That's the way you, Timothy, as a young pastor that I'm training, that's the way you need to deal with the elders. You need to have respect. Then he goes on and he says you need to treat the mothers, treat the women. So he says treat men as fathers, treat the women as mothers and the sis- and." and Sorry, treat the older women as mothers and treat the younger women as sisters in all purity. In all purity. Okay, so this verse, I believe, is really helpful, Um, though, (laughs) though it may be frustrating for some. This verse, I believe, is very helpful to answer some of the questions we have about how do I relate to somebody that I think there's potential that we could be married. We're building a friendship and exploring the possibility of marriage but how is it that I relate to them in a physical way? Well, how did Paul instruct Timothy? Well, treat older men as fathers, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters in all purity. So I've had people say to me before, oh, you're using that verse out of context. That doesn't mean that. Why did he say in all purity? I think what's in Paul's mind is as he's instructing Timothy, he's telling Timothy, Pastor Timothy, there's going to be problems for you. There's going to be temptations for you. You're going to have problems of proximity with young women. You're going to have young women you're going to be ministering to. There's going to be issues where you're going to have a temptation. The way you need to think about them, as a matter of fact, the way all Christian brothers need to think about these young Christian ladies is to think of them as sisters. You might say, okay, well... That brings up questions, and it gets weird, right? So if you're in a relationship with a young lady, and you guys are calling it courtship or dating, whatever you're doing, I talked about that last week, I'm going to get off of it because I realize it irritates people, and it irritates me, so here we go. Um, So you're in a relationship, you're, you're building a friendship, you're exploring the potential for marriage, how long do you treat that lady as a sister, Right? How long do you think of her as a sister in the Lord? And how long do you let that, do you let that parameter of, the, of thinking about her that way guide the way you treat her physically? The way you come at her physically? And, and ladies, this flips for you. Younger women as brothers, right? I, I think that it's, we, can, we can assume that without stretching the text beyond what it's intended. So young ladies need to be thinking as, of, the brothers, of the young men as brothers, um, Christian men, or do you think about the young ladies as sisters? So, so when and how does that change? Well, the only place where you see a line drawn where it should change from... I'll, I'll use an example. So when, when should I have quit thinking of Natalie as my sister and start thinking of her as something different? Because if I never stopped thinking of her as my sister, our life would be weird. Are you with me? Yes. Okay. Here's what changed, Natalie, from my sister in the Lord to my wife. A line was drawn when I entered into a covenant with her that changed her from the one young woman in my life that's not my sister in the Lord to my wife. Are you understanding the implications of what I'm saying? I'm telling you that up and until the point you join together in covenant with somebody, you should treat them as a brother or sister in the Lord. And that idea should dictate for you how you navigate the potential minefield of okay, what is permissible as far as physicality is concerned. Some of you hate me right now. Some of you want to pull a Thomas Jefferson and go first Timothy 5. Exacto knife out the Bible, because I don't want to think about it like that. I know you don't, but I tell you what, if you would, save yourself a lot of pain. If you would, You'd, you'd understand if, if, you, if you would submit yourself and submit, I, and I realize this is a total polar opposite <laughs> from the message you're getting from the rest of culture, but that sh- really should be expected. Um, starting with the fact that not even a hint of sexual immorality should be found among us, it, it got weird there, uh, really, if we're being honest. And so, um, a, a, a tool for your thinking, and this helps you not just if you're in a courtship relationship or exploring the possibility of marriage, uh, this helps you as you're walking down the street, right? And you're trying, to, you're trying to work that Job covenant deal, right? I made a covenant with my eyes not to put, look lustfully upon a woman, right? And you guys know what I'm talking about. It's, it's the same for ladies. We're not going to let them off the hook. Sometimes, man, our, our eyes try to cause us to sin. Sometimes they, they're lo- looking longer than they should. And Job said he made a covenant with his eyes, man. He was going to bounce his eyes, right? She's pretty. Boom, I'm going to go look over here, <laughs> Right? And stay out of trouble. So the, the fact that we have this tool of thought and this, this principle to understand that, and, 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 and you'll notice now, if you haven't already, that um, the, 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 the women that are, are seasoned and mature and wonderful in this church, I, I call mama. Okay? They're not older. They're seasoned and mature and wonderful. I call them mama. And, and you young ladies in this church... By and large, I don't even call you by your name, I'll call you sister. And some of you think I do that because I forgot your name. Full disclosure, maybe sometimes, but most of the time not. Most of the time not. Most of the time, that's a function of of something very intentional. I want you to know I think of you as a sister, and I want you to think of me as a brother, or a father in the Lord, depending on the age difference and, and kind of where I am and what I am in your life, so... We should be thinking of each other like family, unless we come together in a covenant that changes that dynamic and makes us husband and wife. There you go. Okay, that was fun, wasn't it? Um, okay, here's another one. This is this is this is a good one. This will help you if if you write it. So write down Romans thirteen fourteen. Okay. The verses right above Romans thirteen fourteen, I think it's maybe just verse thirteen. It says, "Don't," I I'm, may, I'm, 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 this is not verbatim probably, but it says, "Do not mess around. Don't be getting drunk. Don't be promiscuous. Don't be messing with the deeds of darkness." And it kind of lists a bunch of those out right above it. And it says, "Instead, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make no provision for your flesh." Put on the Lord Jesus. Don't so don't participate in all these deeds of darkness. Instead, do this. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for your flesh. This is a super helpful thought, and it'll 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 get put us in a better position to take the way of escape that, that Jesus has promised to give us in 1 Corinthians 10. Okay, so the way most people deal with temptation, the way most people think about temptation is um, you know, they'll essentially they'll, they'll overestimate their own spiritual strength oftentimes. And they'll, they'll run right up to the edge of temptation and then, you know, start praying in tongues and begging Jesus and doing everything they possibly can. Like, Hey, Lord, help me provide a way of escape. I don't want to do this. They're white knuckling it. And then end up, you know, stepping over the line and doing something they didn't want to do. Um, and, And it makes a lot of sense, honestly, when, when you study the, the, the chemical and kind of physiological reactions in the body when it comes to things like arousal and, and sexuality, uh, there's, there's a chemical cocktail that your brain produces. Um, it's got uh, vasopressin, norepinephrine, and oxytocin. And so when those three things coalesce, and it dumps into your body. It's it's, uh, a chemical cousin to amphetamines, and so it is addictive, and that's why uh, I've had so many conversations where I've sat across from people, and they're weeping and telling me, I had absolutely no intention whatsoever of sinning sexually with this person, and I can't even tell you how it happened. I can tell you how it happened. You you lost control. (laughs) Your brain got hijacked in the same way that I know a lot of people that have told me, listen, man, I never thought I'd steal. I never thought I'd hurt people. I never thought I'd do a lot of things, but I got addicted to a certain drug, and, and in order to get that drug, I did a bunch of things that I never thought I would do. Things, issues of sexual temptation are very similar, and actually what happens in your body, the pleasure chemicals, the, the pathways, the neurons in your brain, the way all that works, it's, it's, it's almost identical. And so you can um, become addicted to... Uh, that, that feeling that comes, right, when um, you're in the presence of somebody else that you're attracted to and, and things start heading that way. And so what Romans 13, 14 does is gives us a powerful tool because it says to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, right? So my disposition is to be in this place where uh, my mind and heart and my life is focused upon what it is Jesus would have for me. So put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for your flesh. So what that means is we need to get smarter, when it comes to temptation. See, Jesus is smarter than us and he knows us because he made us. And so that's part of why he gives us this instruction through the apostle Paul in the book of Romans to make no provision for our flesh because most of us get to the place where our flesh is tempted and then we're disappointed when, you know, we may be able to resist that temptation once, twice, three times. uh, But I mean, both scientifically and experientially, we all understand that self-discipline is a it's a commodity that can be burned up, right? There's a certain point where you keep putting yourself in that place where you're tempted. Eventually, you're going to give in to that thing. Jesus says, let's be smart. Let's let's think about it before we get in the spot where we're tempted. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ, make no provision for your flesh, okay? A bunch of you have heard this before. I don't have a better analogy. So it's one of those things where as I get older as a minister, some of you are just gonna have to suffer through the fact that I have stories and analogies you're gonna hear more than once, okay? So here we go, right? We're there. Love you, mean it. Um, so if, if you're a diabetic, right, and the doctor says, you gotta quit eating chocolate cake, you're gonna die. I realize you like it, I realize it's yummy, but you gotta stop because if you keep eating hot sugar, you're gonna die, okay? Here's what a lot of Christians do in regards to temptations of all kinds, but in particular sexual temptation they'll say, they're that person in that situation. And, and instead of going to Kroger and, and heading to the produce section where they should be hanging out, right? Go get you some artichokes and some celery stalks, okay? That's the kind of stuff that you should be dealing with. No, they go over to the bakery, and they slow roll through the bakery. I'm not going to buy anything. I just want to smell what's in here. You know what I mean? No, stop, because what's going to happen? You go through there, and you're smelling it. You know what's going to happen, They're going to put that triple chocolate German fudge cake right up on the counter. It's just going to happen to be the day that that thing's there. And so now what what do you have to deal with? Now you're walking through there, and, and, and if you're over in the produce section, right, if you were bagging up some bananas right now, you wouldn't be having to have this thought. But since you went to the bakery, since you made provision for your flesh, you knew that was going to be tempting, but I just want to go over there. I'm just going to look, not going to touch. Now the cake's sitting there. It's talking to you come here. You know what I mean? Come come by me. Right? So so the cake's talking to you. You're over here having this dilemma. And then what do we do? What are we masters at, Love City? What are all of us super good masters at? We justify stuff. We can do that when when that temptation starts. We get to this place where we can justify little bits. It's little foxes that spoil the vine. And so we're like, you know what? I, I know I can't eat that, but it smells so good. I just want my house to smell like that. I won't eat it. I'm gonna buy it, take it home, and I'm just gonna set it on the counter so the aroma's there. <laughs> you fool, right? The trap has sprung, you're done, right? Proverbs talks about you just walk into the fowler's snare. Gotcha. Okay, so you're done for. And, 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 and we all know what's gonna happen next. At the end of the story, you all can fill in the blank, okay? You're gonna get home, you're gonna sit the cake there. Okay, Lord. I can't eat this cake, so I'm asking you to give me the strength not to eat this cake. And all the time, he's, you know, he's face-palling. If you'd just not gone to the bakery, we wouldn't be having this conversation. But there you are. You know, you're praying your most fervent prayer. But what's going to happen? Okay, 12 o'clock, you wake up. You just, you've been dreaming about chocolate cake. You're going to go down there, and you're going to have a piece. And then you're going to die of diabetes. Okay, so that's the end of the story. <laughs> I don't mean to make light of diabetes. That's a serious thing, and I'm seriously not, that's not a joke. However, it's kind of what we do. We do that with sexual temptation. Do we not? You understand what I'm saying? Right? So you got to decide, and you got to think through, and this is where I'm, I'm fighting the temptation to spell this out for you, because I want to, I'm going to be honest. You got to think about What situations, when it comes to sexual temptation, is making provision for your flesh? you got to be smart, and most people that I talk to are going to minimize where they're tempted, and they're going to try to justify the maximum that they can. You need to not be a fool, and don't do that. I love you, but if you do that, you're a fool, because you will end up eating that chocolate cake, and you will end up in the pain that comes in sinning sexually. Flee! Sexual immorality, because every other sin a man commits that's outside the body, but the sexually immoral man sins against his own body. And do you not know? Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Given to you by God, you've been bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. Stop. You got to care about this, you got to see that it's not just God. Putting down these rules and parameters because he's the fun police and wants to take away some good thing. That's never true. Every time he puts a prohibition, he's saving you from pain and he's offering you something better. I promise you that's true every single time. Why does this matter? What is our motivation for fighting this fight against sexual temptation and fighting for purity in regards to sexuality? What is the motivation? What should be the motivation, okay? I'm going to give you three. There's potentially more. Here's the big ones as I pray through this and think about this. First of all, why? what is our motivation for caring about the verses we just talked about? What is our motivation for fighting the good fight for sexual purity? Number one, because we love God because we love God. That should be part of why we fight this fight. That should be part of why we care about what his standards are. That should be part of why we care about how we represent him and reflect him to the world, because we love God. And the problem is, in any area of life, and in many areas of life, we like to say, well, yeah, I love God, but then not care about what his standard is, whether it's sexuality or whether it's some other set of sins or struggles. Okay, but here's the problem with that. Jesus says twice in John 14, if you love me then keep my commandments. Actually, one time he says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Another time he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so what's some of the motivation for thinking about younger women as sisters and younger men as brothers, as hard as that may be? What's, What's the motivation for prayerfully thinking through the fact that we don't put ourselves in situations where we are tempted because we care so much What's the motivation for caring that deeply about adhering to God's standards of purity? Well, probably the primary one and the biggest one should be that we love God. And what God has said about that, what Jesus said out of his own mouth, is that if you love me, don't run around saying I love God and then not giving a rip about what he wants. You can't do that. The not giving a rip about what he wants in regards to these things negates the whole I love God. We can't do that. Now, that doesn't mean, you got to be careful with this. You can't get into condemnation. You can't get into the point that if you struggle, there's a difference between fighting against temptation and struggling against sin and going full bore towards, I'm going to do whatever I want, okay? Full bore towards, I'm going to do whatever I want, looks a lot like you probably don't actually love God. You may just be giving him lip service. To be in the constant fray, fighting against those temptations that... That, that befall all of us, there's no temptation that's not common to man, to be pushing against those things, to be asking for God's help, growing in God's grace, to be in the battle, that, that's not what this is talking about, okay? So that doesn't, if, if we love God, we are going to be in the fight, we are going to be pushing back, we're going to be looking for that way of escape that God provides so that we don't get our foot trapped up in a mess, okay? Amen. So, motivations for, for fighting the fight against sexual temptation, because we love God, Okay? So that matters as much for the people that are exploring the possibility of marriage as it does the person that, you know, at 11:30s open opened up the laptop. You understand what I'm saying? What is the motivation for fighting against those incredibly strong impulses? First and foremost should be because I love God. Well, why do I love him? Well, man, he loved me first because of Jesus and what he's done. Okay? Here's the second reason. So, reasons why we should fight for sexual purity, reasons why we should be in the fray, reasons why we should shoot for that high standard of it not even being named among among us. First is uh, because we love God. Secondly, because we love the person. The person, especially if you're in a relationship, okay? And you're, you're in a friendship, and you're exploring the possibility of marriage. See the lie? <laughs> the lie that so many people have bought is that uh, if you love somebody that you're going to... Um, that you're going to perform some level of of, uh, showing of physical affection in order to prove that. That is a very common and pervasive... I mean, mean, honestly, we're almost, in, in a really grotesque, sad way, we're almost post that in the thinking of many of the people in our culture because it's lost so much meaning that now it's so... Sex and sexuality is so casual, it's like it doesn't even have that much of a, uh, a proof one way or the other. If it, you know, it used to be, I mean, you, you watch movies from the 70s and 80s, you know, it was, it was the guy saying, you know, if you love me, you, you'll do this and that, right? And it was, it was kind of this thing that girls were pressured in, and those guys were spineless punks, they all needed to be smacked by their father. But uh, the, So that's not even, t- now, it's, man, we're, we're to the point where it's like, there, there's, it's, it's lost so much significance, it's not even, not even a thing, but, but here's the point. If we love the person, if we really love the person that we're building a friendship with or, or, I mean, anybody for that matter, but especially in that context, if we love the person that we're building a friendship with and in, in, in the exploration of the possibility of marriage, then, then what we're going to do is, is Hebrews 10, 24. And that's, it says, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, right? So here's the truth about that. If we love that person, if you really love them, you're going to push them towards Jesus, not drag them away. And one of the ways that you could drag them away is by giving in to sexual temptation and dragging them in with you. Is thinking about them as something to, to take something from as opposed to somebody to give something to, right? We should be looking to fiercely protect the purity of one another when it comes to these relationships as opposed to you know trying to slowly chip away at it until we can get something that, that we selfishly desire. So because we love God, because we love the person, um, or because we love th- those... Those people, uh, those are reasons why we should be fighting the fight. Here's here's the third reason, okay? Because we love the world. Because we love the world. Because we love people broadly is why we should be in this fight. Is why we should care about this deeply. Is why we should take these scriptures, submit our thinking to them, and see if it lines up. Because we love God, because we love the person, and because we love the world broadly. Matthew 5.14, Jesus says this groundbreaking, world-shaking, monumental thing. Here's what he says. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. You also saw this come up in Paul's discussion Ephesians 5 of of sexual purity and things of that nature, not getting pulled into the deeds of darkness, but we have to be set as a light to the world. So because we love the world, we're going to be in this fight. Because we love the world that Jesus loves, we're going to push back against a sinful, sexual ethic, okay? So, how, does, how do we in our lives fight in this fight, taking the way of escape, not making provision for our flesh, fleeing sexual morality? How is it that we, doing these things God's way, how does it matter? Why does it matter, okay? So, here's, here's what I would say, just as a way of analogy. So, if, if where our culture's at, from a sexual ethic perspective and where the conversation is in sex and sexuality. Okay, so they're way over here, and here's what that looks like. Should I have sex on the first date? Okay, that's the big question. Okay, now, way over here, all the way at the other end of the spectrum, is where Christians should be having a conversation, right? We think of sex in terms of that's something that belongs inside of the safety and the beauty of covenant marriage. Those discussions are way far away from each other. Those are two really big extremes. Here's the sad thing. For many Christians, they hang out somewhere around here, right in the middle of the spectrum. And that's for various reasons. One, they may just not understand what God's standard is when it comes to purity. Two, they may feel weird or not want to stand out, especially if they're doing things like, fleeing sexual immorality, especially if they're doing things like, get this, treating the person that they're building a relationship with like a brother or sister in the Lord, that's going to mean their relationship is going to look markedly different from their unsaved friends. Is it not? Do you understand what I'm talking about? In a bunch of different ways, that's going to look really, really different. And some people actually get afraid of the pressure of having to describe how their relationship's different, why it's different, answer those questions. And what I'm saying to you is, one of the, we, if, if we love the world, we need to understand, the conversation for them is in a real dark, decrepit place. God's people are called to have this conversation on, on a really totally different plane. And if we live according to God's ethic when it comes to sex and sexuality, we will cause a stir. If we are running around treating our significant other, the person that we're in a relationship with, a friendship with, looking at the potential of marriage, if we're treating them... Like a brother or sister in the Lord, all that that means, that means our relationships are going to look a lot different, and that will open up opportunities for you to have conversations with people about why you are willing to do that. And you get to talk about why you love the Lord, and that's one of your motivations. You get to talk about why you actually love that other person and what that means. That means that you're going to look to serve them instead of get something from them. You see what I'm talking about? This opens up in maybe more a vibrant way than anything else you could do, a possibility for sharing the love of God and the truth of the gospel with them. You will cause a stir if you live your life according to God's standard when it comes to these things. You will have the opportunity to share. And some of you have. I know some of you have gone about things this way, and you've had to explain to friends when they ask you the questions everybody asks about relationships You've had to go, well, actually, it's not like that for us. And here's the reasons. And I understand that the first reaction from that person might be some of the reaction I'm getting from some of you today. Right? Like, what? But but you get to have a conversation. You get to open up a dialogue. And then you get to have that conversation again and again. And you get to keep bringing it back to Jesus and the fact that that is your motivation. This Sexuality is a huge issue, and the fact that we as God's people do this different, whether we're single, whether we're pursuing marriage, or whether we're married, the way we deal with sex and sexuality, by God's standard of purity, it is one of the ways that we are a city set on a hill. When Jesus says, you're the light of the world, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. He's talking about the fact that back in the day, when you were, when you were traveling, man, you came around the corner, if there was a city, man, lit up with the torches, you could see that thing from miles away. You could not miss it. And that's what he says we're supposed to be. In the midst of this culture that has gotten so dark in its thinking when it comes to things regarding sex and sexuality, we are supposed to be a city set on a hill. A bright light and contrast that stands against that darkness and offers people a better way. Shows people that there is another option. This is one of the clearest ways that we can declare to the world that the power of the gospel is a reality. You know, for those of us that that get concerned about standing out too much, we need to just just get okay with that. 1 Peter 2.9 tells us that we are peculiar people and we belong to God. We're going to stand out, man. Praise God for that. If we don't, then we're going to miss a lot of opportunities to share the hope of the gospel. The gospel changes our greatest desires from selfish to selfless from pleasing ourselves to pleasing our master. How does it do that? Why does the gospel cause that to be the Christian ethic? Well, it's because the gospel is is centered around the story of God himself serving us selflessly, not doing what was best for him, but was doing doing what was best for us. The gospel centers around the fact that we are sinners, broken, that we are imperfect, that we cause the problem, but that God in his great love and mercy served us by sending Jesus on a rescue mission to live a perfect life, to die in our place for our sins as the substitute and sacrifice, and then rise from the grave to conquer sin and death and provide us the opportunity to stand as righteous sons and daughters of God, to release to the world the opportunity for the Holy Spirit of God now to dwell in the sons and daughters of God, that we can be the New Testament temple of the Holy Spirit. And we need to live in light of that gospel. It's going to take God's grace to do it. The bar is set high, as it often is when we really look at it. Because in all things really, Our bar is not just principle. The bar that we set as far as the standard and what we pursue as far as a goal is more of a person than a finish line, and that person is Jesus. We want to be like him. We want to think like he thinks. We want to do what he does, say what he says, approach situations the way he would. He wouldn't approach a relationship selfishly looking what he could get. He proved that. He'd be looking to find out what he can give. He'd be steering people towards God, not away he'd be honoring Father God with absolutely every shred of every part of any relationship he was a part of. That's the call, friends. It's a big one. But praise God it's possible because of him. Striving by God's grace to reject the self-focused sexual ethic of our day is one of the clearest and loudest ways we can declare to the world that our risen Savior is both real and relevant. Some people don't think that God is real. Some people don't think that God is relevant anymore. They think that this, what the Bible presents in regards to sex and sexuality, in regards to courtship and dating and all of these things, that it's, it's irrelevant, it's archaic, um, that it, it doesn't apply today. Here's the thing. When we walk by the undeniable power of God, and we, we are able to walk in these things, and we are able to adhere to God's ethic as it regards to sex and things of this nature, it, it, it will cause curiosity and it will speak to the reality of the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of a Christian. The power of the word of God to set us free from slavery to sin and self. Because let's be honest, doesn't everybody know? I don't know if there's a lot of things that all of us know. Here's one thing all of us know. Not giving in to sexual temptation is hard. Is that true? Man, that's true. <laughs> Pretty much across the board. So that's why it's going to speak to them when we're able to live this way, when we take these godly principles and we walk in such a way that we can be that city set on a hill. This is one of the clearest and loudest ways we can declare to the world that our risen Savior is both real and relevant. The world has an ever-devolving and more destructive sexual standard. Have you noticed that? It doesn't seem to be getting better. It seems to be getting worse. The world has an ever-devolving and more destructive sexual standard God has a never-changing, life-giving, and holy standard for sexuality. May we be a people who choose by God's grace to strive for his good and beautiful best regarding these things. May we be a people who approach sexuality different, knowing that it is from God, and thus ruled by his benevolent boundaries. And may the way we submit to God's standards regarding sexuality be a holy reflection to the world of the wisdom, power, love, and goodness of our Savior King. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now in the name of Jesus. We thank you first for the great privilege of approaching you by that name. We know that in and of ourselves, we are not righteous. In and of ourselves, we are not holy. And in and of ourselves, we have no right to come into your throne room. But because of Christ, and his finished work because of his substitution and his great love for us because of his finished work on the cross. We can come to you now and we come to you boldly as sons and daughters. And so God, we just want to set before you the fact that we have a great desire to honor you in the way that we deal with sex and sexuality. We understand that the world around us is dark and broken in their understanding when it comes to these things. We, we are not better than them because we have the hope of the gospel and the truth of your word that is a light to us and, and, a, and a guide for us in these things that doesn't make us better than them. And God, please help us not to act like we are. Uh, but God, may our hearts break for those who are broken as a result of, of the fact that they don't understand these truths. They've not yet uh, had somebody lovingly share with them uh, the truth regarding these things. And so, Lord, we just ask that In every single place that uh, we find some of these principles may be hard to swallow, that by your Holy Spirit you would work on those. Help us, God, to humbly receive what it is you have for us regarding these things. God, may we believe the first and most important premise, that you don't make rules in an arbitrary way. You're not trying to control us. You're not trying to keep good things from us. But, God, absolutely everything you do is for our good and leads to your glory. And so I thank you, God, that you do... Uh, give prohibitions for our joy. And you do give us freedoms for our joy. And so I thank you, God, that uh, you're glorified when your children um, are able to be fully satisfied in you, but also enjoy the good things you've given us. And so uh, please, God, help us to look at these things this way. Help us to see these issues the way you see them. Lord, it is difficult because there is a counter-narrative screaming at us every single day. Lord, we will be chastised in our time for thinking and speaking this way about these things. We will have, uh, people will look down upon us, people will think we're foolish, people will think we are we are out of date, old-fashioned, and archaic, but God, may we stand boldly, but humbly at the same time, and may we stand, Lord, as a city set on a hill. And God, as we walk through these things, and as we... Um, As we deal with these things in this way, may people's curiosity be piqued as they see that we don't suffer from the same brokenness and pain that so many do uh, when they get entangled in these sins that do have a greater and more devastating effect upon us uh, than some others do. Please, God, help us for for our own good, for your glory, and for the good of others uh, to walk in your wisdom regarding uh, sex and sexuality. We love you, and we thank you for your help. We desperately need it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.com dot org